The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. Before we get started, please allow me a moment to share some important information with you. If you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast so that the show can continue to grow and reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murderinmyfam or by searching for the Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Murder of My Family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Meredith Semino. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One final item before we get started. I continue to talk about CrimeCon, the true crime convention that's coming up in New Orleans this June. As you've heard, I'm excited to be on Podcast Row, and I've had several people say that they're going and they're going to stop by and say hi. I hope if you're going, you'll do the same. If you need to purchase badges for CrimeCon, visit CrimeCon.com, and during checkout, use my promo code, Criminology19, to save 10% on your standard badges. Thank you, and now on with the show. 46 years ago this week, on February 13, 1973, the day before Valentine's Day, an unthinkable and shocking murder was committed in the Forest Hills Garden section of Queens, New York. A crime so brutal, it left area residents afraid that a sadistic maniac was on the loose. Sadly, the murder case of Madeline D. Filippi remains unsolved nearly 50 years later. 27-year-old Madeline D. Filippi had a lot going for her. She was living what many people during that period might call a dream. Often referred to as Maddie by some of her friends, she was the young wife of an up-and-coming doctor and surgeon, 32-year-old Dr. Joseph DeFilippi, who was in his last year of residency at Roosevelt Hospital. The DeFilippis had only been married for a few years, and in late 1972, they celebrated the arrival of their first child, a baby boy that they named Joseph. The couple couldn't have been happier. Madeline was on maternity leave from her job of three years at St. Joseph's Academy in Greenwich Village, where she taught second grade. Teaching at a Catholic school was something Madeline enjoyed, 
as she was a devout Catholic herself. The young family lived in Forest Hills Gardens, an area that Madeline knew well. After all, she was a lifelong resident and remained close to her family there. The DeFilippi's first-story apartment in a two-story Tudor-style home on the 800 block of Burn Street was perfect for them. And Forest Hills Gardens was a really trendy and fashionable area. Things looked promising for the DeFilippi's, but they had no idea of the coming horror that would change their family forever. That Tuesday, February 13th, while many people were out buying last-second gifts for Valentine's Day, Madeline was at home taking care of her young son, while her husband Joe made his rounds at the hospital. Several times that day, Madeline's parents, Charles and Stella Rinaldi, who lived in a different part of Queens, tried to reach Madeline by phone, but they didn't get an answer. Finally, at about 5.30 p.m., they decided to call Madeline's and Joe's landlord, Stanley Jeffrey, to see if he would check in on Madeline. Jeffrey lived in the upstairs apartment and told Charles to hold on while he went down to check on Madeline. He sat the phone down and grabbed his passkey and walked down the steps. He didn't get a reply when he knocked on the DeFilippi's door, so he used the key to let himself in. As he stepped into the kitchen, he heard baby Joe crying in his crib, and he was met with a ghastly sight. Madeline was lying on the floor in a pool of blood. The horrified landlord knew that Madeline was dead. He'd shut the door and raced upstairs to his apartment. As he picked up the phone, he didn't know how to tell Madeline's father, who was still on hold, what had happened. When he finally spoke, all he could get out was, You better get over here, Charlie. Madeline's been hurt. Panicked, Madeline's parents headed to her home, while Stanley Jeffrey called police. When police arrived at the scene, they weren't prepared for what they found inside. Madeline's petite body showed signs of having been beaten around the head and neck, and she had several cuts and stab wounds. Her hands were bound loosely with a bra. Broken liquor bottles surrounded her body. Madeline's parents arrived at the DeFilippi home, but understandably were stopped by police outside. They knew something was very wrong. As detectives worked on the crime scene, they found a thin trail of blood leading from the bedroom to the kitchen. The bed was a mess, as if there may have been a struggle in it. Police felt that Madeline may have been the victim of an attempted sexual attack and had resisted. Thankfully, Baby Joe was in his crib unharmed. As police made their way around, they found that the apartment hadn't been ransacked and there was no sign of forced entry. Locked in the basement, they discovered the family dog, a Welsh terrier, unharmed. Meanwhile, Dr. Felipe was contacted at the hospital and rushed home to face the devastating news about his wife. Police felt that since the home wasn't ransacked, that robbery wasn't a motive. The doors all seemed to have been locked and secured with no sign of forced entry, so they theorized that Madeline let her killer into the apartment because she knew him, or that he had gained access using some sort of ruse to gain her trust. Madeline's friends would later say that she would never have let a stranger into her home. Witnesses watched as police carried broken bottles, a knife, and a large sharp metal file out of the home. It was reported by police that they had found latent prints in the home, but they didn't elaborate. As is customary in these kinds of cases, where it seems like a crime of passion, those closest to Madeline were looked at by police, starting with Madeline's own husband. Having to answer probing questions by police while dealing with the grief of his young wife being murdered was tough on Dr. DeFilippi. But in the end, he had an airtight alibi as he was working a 36-hour shift at the hospital. During questioning, 
police learned that Dr. DeFilippi had also tried calling home during breaks that he had, but he got a busy signal. The time of Madeline's death was estimated to be between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. that day. The autopsy on Madeline's body determined that 42 stab and slash wounds were the cause of death, and that the broken bottle pieces likely caused the wounds that killed Madeline. The autopsy also revealed no signs of rape. Within two days of Madeline's murder, police were quoted in the New York Daily News as saying, We have what we believe to be a positive clue that we believe to be a good clue. We may have a major break in the case. Despite that quote, there was never an arrest in Madeline's case. Along the way, police went down rabbit holes, including a theory that maybe Madeline's murder was mob-related. Another theory was that a disgruntled or drug-addicted patient of Dr. DeFilippi targeted their home, seeking drugs. Whatever the motive and whoever the killer, Madeline's murder was brutal, cruel, and sadistic. Eventually, Madeline's case went cold, swallowed up by the large city's crimes that would come after it. On Saturday, February 17, 1973, four days after she was murdered, Madeline's service was held at St. Margaret's Catholic Church in Middle Village, Queens, the same church that she had attended for much of her life, and the one whose altar she stood in front of on the day she married Joe DeFilippi. 300 mourners showed up to grieve the young mother's loss and to show their respects and support for her family. Madeline was buried across the street in St. John's Cemetery. Left in the wake of Madeline's unsolved murder was a lot of uncertainty and unanswered questions. Madeline's widower, Dr. Joseph DeFilippi, was left alone to care for his son. He died only 14 years after his wife. Perhaps the stress following Madeline's murder contributed to his death, and Madeline's only son, Joe, grew up without ever knowing his mother. When Madeline died, four-month-old Joe's life was permanently altered. Joe joined me to discuss the detour his life took on that fateful day in February 1973. That conversation is next. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you have something that's interfering with your happiness or standing in the way of attaining your goals? If so, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. You can conveniently connect with your own professional counselor in the safety and privacy of an online environment. And how you connect is up to you. You can choose to schedule secure video or phone sessions and also chat and text with your therapist. Everything you share is confidential and licensed professional counselors can help you with issues ranging from stress and depression to self-esteem and anger issues. One thing that jumped out to me was that they also help with grief issues. And let's face it, on this podcast, we deal with a lot of sad and heavy cases and grieving family members. And better help is ideal for those difficult situations. If you're not happy with your therapist for any reason, you can request a new one for no additional charge. And financial aid is available for those who qualify. Best of all is that BetterHelp is a truly affordable option. The Murder in My Family listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code FAMILY. So why not get started today? Go to BetterHelp.com family and simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. Again, go to BetterHelp.com family and enter code FAMILY at checkout. Thanks so much, Joe, for joining me to discuss your mom's case with us today. No problem, Mike. Uh, you know, th- thank you for reaching out. I'm, uh, 
I'm, I'm really happy to be here. You know, it's, it's hard sometimes, um, you know, I think anyone who's experienced a loss like this in their family, you know, you're in the mood to chat. And then other times it's the last thing that you want to do. And it's, you know, I mean, for me, it's, it, it kind of comes and goes. There's periods of time where I'm, I'm able to kind of articulate how I feel and, you know, uh, you know, and talk about this stuff. And then other times, uh, you know, for a long time, I wouldn't talk about it at all. So I think now I, I feel, for whatever reason, a little, you know, comfortable to, to share my experience. Today's been, a, you know, one of those days. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's, you know, as it comes about every year. So I guess this is a good time to, uh, to record. You were just a baby when, when your mom was killed. Do you feel like that her death sort of gave you an alternate path or an alternate life? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, um, you know, I was four months old, you know, my mother was murdered and, uh, it was a whole life that, that I never got to live. Um, you know, she never got to live. She was 27 when she died. Um, but I, you know, for me, you know, I, I have, I think one picture maybe of, of her and I together. Um, you know, I don't have any pictures of my parents and myself together that I've ever seen. Um, it's, it's just so bizarre. It's, it's just like a completely, like a door was shut and, and I went in a different direction. So that, that, that's always been, you know, quite difficult. Uh, I like to use the term ripple effect because one action by one person is like a stone in a pond. It just ripples throughout the pond and, and, and changes stuff. And it seems like that happened here. Yeah, I think that's very apt. Um, you know, one of the things that, that, you know, when I, when I see something in the news or I hear about a violent crime, you know, I, I, my first thought is really the, 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 the impact on, you know, immediate family, um, you know, and then down the road, the generational impact of, of something like that, of someone taking somebody's life. I mean, obviously it affects, you know, uh, the person, uh, the victim, but, you know, the people who are close to them, um, you know, the, their children, their children's children. I mean, this becomes part of, you know, the, the fabric of a family and uh, of a life for everybody, you know. F- so for my kids, uh, and I haven't really talked to them about this, but they, you know, that, that was their grandmother that they never knew. And so it really does have that generational impact. I mean, I saw how it affected their, you know, my mother's parents, my, my maternal grandparents, um, it's just brutal. It is just brutal. And there's so, you know, just so many people get affected, um, you know, by violent crime. And that's really, you know, kind of where my heart is, um, you know, and one of the reasons I wanted to do this, uh, you know, I know there's people out there who have suffered through it. Um, you know, I know people who's, you know, either, you know, it's been very close relation or a friend or whatever it's been, uh, people who are interested in this stuff. And I just want people just to, you know, anytime you hear one of these stories, I mean, they're very, you know, uh, you know, people love true crime. People are, you know, you know, looking, you know, watching Netflix, and this is really, you know, what everyone's doing right now. But the Ted Bundy special that just came out, I guess, last month, it was a perfect example about this. You know, they kind of glossed over the victims, but then you got to think of the victims' families, the parents, the kids, all of that. And you know, yeah, Ted Bundy was charismatic, or you know, whatever. But you know, you're missing the the the, the, the real story there. I, I think. Yeah, and I think you hear so much about the the criminals and the killers and what they did in prison and how much time they got and but you don't always hear about the victims and their families and that's that's sort of why I started this podcast in the first place just cuz that I knew there was another element missing that we didn't always hear about. 
And and you wrestled. I think you just touched on it. You know, talking with your kids and stuff about this. You wrestled with discussing your mom's case because of some of the challenges that it might present for you. Can you tell us a little bit about some of those challenges or some of the the reasons you might not have been wanting to talk about this before? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's something that that I haven't talked about with with close family, with friends, with colleagues. Um, you know, it's not. It's really not there's no easy kind of segue into this kind of conversation. So I have kept it, uh, you know, very close to the vest. Obviously, you know, people my my immediate family know and some very close friends know, but it's not, you know, it's not something a lot of people would know about me. Um, you know, as far as my kids go, they know that my, you know, their grandmother, my mother passed away when I was young and I was, and and that's it, right? They don't know anything else. And, you know, they're, they're young enough. I I don't want to spoil that for them. Um, you know, and there's no reason to, uh, so, so I did have trepidations, you know, about that. Um, you know, there's a sort of loss of innocence. You know, when I when I when I remember, I was I think I was 12 years old when I first my father told me the story. I was 11, 12. It was the summertime, and it was really, really hard. And you know, I thought because no one ever told me, you know, I just always assumed cancer, and that's what I probably told kids when I was growing up. Oh, she died from cancer. And you know, when when something like this happens. Um, you know, it's this like salacious story and, and it's in the press and people know, and I'm sure people were whispering behind the back. No one, no one ever told me, you know, you know, but I'm sure my friends knew that it wasn't cancer. Um, you know, it was pretty, pretty notorious story. And, um, yeah, so, you know, I just, I, I don't know when the time would be right, you know, to tell my kids and I have to wrestle with that and grapple with that. Um, but also, you know, when you share a story like, say, your mom's been murdered with somebody, they tend to think of you a little bit differently, you know, a little bit, you know, I, I think through a lens of pity. Um, and I never wanted that, really, you know, and that, that was, you know, personally, like I wanted to achieve on my own and not be looked at, you know, somebody who went through this great trauma and, you know, let's cut him a break, you know, poor, poor guy, poor, poor, you know, poor Joe. So... Yeah, there's there's definitely some reasons why you know I, I was hesitant to share this uh, this story. And when you did find out, when when you were told, how old were you? Eleven when you found out? I, yeah, I think it was eleven. Uh, whatever the whatever year the song "Abracadabra" from Steve Miller was was like top of the charts because I would die. for some reason I remember that in the car or you know that's just one of those things you associate with. So yeah, I think it was eighty one or eighty two. How, how did you deal with it? How did you? come to terms with that and say, you know what, this is really what happened. It wasn't cancer. I have, I mean, like, I don't even know how my 11 year old mind processed that. I remember I went on a drive with my dad. He was, he was weeping. I was weeping. And then like, basically that was it. And we went to bed and, and like, I had nobody to talk to about it. It was, it was crazy. And then the, I guess a few days later, we got back from vacation, and my grandparents came over, my maternal grandparents, and I guess my mom and my, my I, I have a, 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 my mother, who I call my mother, she's my stepmother, my dad remarried in 1975, she is absolutely my mother, so I, you know, I kind of interchanged the two, so I don't want to, I don't call her my stepmother, um, but, I, you know, like, I think my mother and father told my grandparents that I was told about this, and, yeah, I, I you know, like, it's just a hard thing to, to talk about. You know, I, I got hugged and, you know, they, my grandfather tried to talk to me, I think a little bit about it, but a, a first generation Italian man, I it not, you know, it doesn't wear as hard on his sleeve. I think, you know, we all have that, 
you know, it was toxic masculinity where you just kind of suck it up. And I know I did. And I think it manifested itself down the road for me uh, and how I processed it through probably, you know, smoking a lot of pot in high school and drinking too much and, and you know, being a little, little bit wild. Um, you know, I always had that, that, that kind of self-destructive wild streak, especially when I was younger. And I'm sure that was a way of me coping. You know, it's, it's, you know, the mind will do certain things and, you know, to, to kind of relieve itself of, of stress. And that was, you know, my escapism, you know, music was a big thing, sports, but yeah, probably, probably doing some things I should, I shouldn't be doing. Sort of like a bandaid on, on whatever underlying issues you're having dealing with it. Yeah. Like, you know, a bandaid on a bullet wound, um, you know, temporary relief. Um, and oftentimes, you know, it didn't, it didn't, um, you know, the next day was worse or, um, yeah, but it's still, you know, sometimes, and and it's just, you know, it's odd, you know, how it comes and goes in waves. Like there'll be, you know, time, there's not a day goes by. I don't think about it, but you know, there'll be certain times of the year, like father's day, mother's day, like my birthday that it just, you know, it just is just enhanced. I guess that's the best way to describe it, wow. which kind of brings me, you know, to, to, to today, um, you know, where we're talking on, on, on February 13th, which is the 46th anniversary of my mother's murder. And, you know, one of the reasons we kind of, when Mike, you and I talked about this and chose this day, I was like, you know, if I'm going to have a shitty day, let's just, <laughs> let's just get it all out. You know, it's going to be one of those things I'm, I'm ready to talk about. Um, you know, I'm going to do it today. So yeah, 46 years ago today, um, you know, she was murdered and, you know, anniversaries, um, gosh, you know, February 13th, like, just kind of looms in the calendar. Uh, you know, you start thinking about it probably every, you know, the calendar turns to February, and you know there's this day, you know, in the middle of the month, and it's just going to suck, and you're going to have to deal with it. And, you know, work doesn't stop. You don't, you know, nobody at work knows what you're going through. Um, you know, there's been times, and part of my job is I, I'm, you know, I, in front of a lot of people, I do speaking and, and things and meetings and I, yeah, just like that's in the background and it's just so hard. So I really, you know, anyone who's listening to this, you know, there are people out there that empathize, you know, everyone goes through these anniversaries um, and you're a little bit bluer or you're, you know, uh, or things are a little bit harder. And, and today is one of those days for me. And, and, and again, I appreciate you talking uh, about this on, on this day. Um, it's, and it just, you know, I'm thinking of it the day before Valentine's Day, so it's even more of a big reminder. Um, yeah. Everybody's talking about Valentine's Day and then getting uh, candy and flowers and stuff, and this is what you're thinking about probably a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that um, you know, I, I, I received from a cousin of mine who sent me, uh, I think it's probably the last thing my mother ever wrote. He wrote... Um, his family back in 1973, um, Valentine's day card and she mailed it on the 12th. So, you know, the day before she died and I have the card, you know, I have it in a drawer. I, you know, don't look at it all the time, but you know, I just, you know, I remarked to you when we talked the first time, just things like her handwriting, you know, just something simple like that, like how she, you know, writes a letter. Um, I found a lot of similarities in how my handwriting, my cursive, um, you know, neither one of our cursive was very good, but I could see just the way she wrote. So it's, it's weird how the genetics kind of come into it. Um, 
And just one thing that I, you know, would sit back and think about, like, I have no idea, you know, you know, as a writer, what she, you know, what, what was her voice, how she, like, it's just so many things that you want to know and, and you're just never going to. And now 46 years later, there's nobody around that can ever tell me. So, uh, you know, you do a lot of speculation and you kind of, you know, you go places in your head that, yeah, you know, and you, you, you maybe, uh, shouldn't go. Wow. And, and, you know, just having that, that Valentine's Day card, uh, you know, it's sort of like the past reaching out to you. Uh, having that as one of the last things that she wrote has to be pretty powerful. You know, it is. But, you know, the way I look at it is it's, it's, I don't look at it, you know, in a, in a macabre way or, or anything. But, you know, this is, you know, something that my mom wrote, you know, at happier times. And, you know, having a piece of her, having something like that. Because I don't have that much, Mike of hers. I mean, I might have a, like a brooch or um, maybe one of the rings that she wore or something, you know, but maybe I could, you know, hold what I have in my hand of, of what, you know, of hers. And, uh, you know, just having that letter is nice. I look at it as a nice thing to have, not any, not anything else. And I look at her things as a nice thing. I'm not, you know, look at them as, as and, and I'm wistful about, you know, my life without her. I just, you know, it's just nice to have a couple of things, you know, of hers. Um, you know, in fact, you know, when I think about losing her, I don't think so much about myself because I never knew her. You know, I think about her parents and I think about her mom and dad, my grandparents. I think about my my father, um, who was, gosh, he must have been 30 at the time. So he was a resident um, at, at Roosevelt Hospital in Manhattan. He was, it was, uh, you know, about to become a surgeon. And, you know, he went through this whole thing. Uh, I think I told you he was the suspect. He was the number one suspect, you know, at the time. And that, that was, must have been just impossible for him. Impossible. Um, you know, the, the, the nature of her murder was uh, such that it was, it, it was classified, I think, as a crime of passion, the amount of stab wounds and, and uh, you know, abuse that, that she went through. Um, you know, they obviously would point to the husband uh, first. And, you know, this is 1973, New York City, Queens, um, I don't know if, you know, I'm sure you a little bit, but I've, I've done some, some research on the, the NYPD in that time and the seventies and the city in general, this was not, um, you know, not a great time. It was a, I guess it was a great time to be a criminal, but, uh, you know, resources were scarce, money was scarce. Um, it was more of a lawless kind of place. And when you think of New York city now, so, uh, you know, they, they figured my dad was the suspect and, you know, I, you know, luckily, luckily he was, he was, in, he was operating on somebody at the time. And, you know, there was no way that he could have gone from the operating theater to, you know, our house in Forest Hills, uh, you know, to be able to do this. So, you know, he was exonerated, but I mean, think about that, you know, good Lord. I mean, like being, you know, a, a new father, uh, recently married, going through that shit is, is just unbelievable to me. So when I think about it, I think about, you know, and we talk, talk back about, you know, the impact, that ripple effect, and how it was, you know, not just, you know, it's, it's the husband, it's the parents, it's the kid, and so on and so forth down the line. So, yeah. And, and you were an only child when this happened? And yes, I was, yeah. And how long were your parents uh, married at the time? Three years. So, yeah. You know, three years. I was, yeah, I was, I mean, my mom was a kid. She was 27. Okay. So. Uh, it's, you know, their life is just starting out together and they have their first child and then this happens and uh, just, 
just an ugly, ugly crime. And I, I read some of the research I did. It was a really brutal and sadistic crime, it seemed. You mentioned it, it seemed personal. I, I guess police thought yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but there was descriptions of her being beaten with bottles, possibly, or and stabbed either with bottle pieces or with a knife. Um, yep. And her hands were bound in front of her with a brazier. I that's from what I read. You know, obviously, or, or, or you know, I, I have not seen you know crime scene pictures, nor would I want to. Um, but that is, you know, I'm getting what you know the same information you got from the papers. I talked mm-hmm. to some folks in the NYPD cold case and, you know, they described it the same way. So, you know, it was not a, you know, it was not a good way to go. And, um, yeah, I mean, I was in a crib in the next room when it happened. And that's, what's so shocking that this happened just a short distance from you. And obviously you were that young, you you probably didn't know what was going on or, but it's just shocking that something like that happened so close to you while you were in, while you were there um yeah i mean i'm sure that i'm sure whoever was you know looked in the crib and i looked at him i mean you know i know that my eyes have seen him um i just you know yeah, can't remember scary and you know i know there were different scenarios the police even we talked a little bit you said that since your family was italian they even looked to see if there might be some sort of mafia angle which in itself seems like stereotyping on the part of the police but yeah um, it, it 1973 like... <laughs> uh you know that's yeah and and that obviously was a dead end there's none of that stuff in your family so that they're going down a road that's not leading to anything no and and one of the possibilities you talked about was uh possibly somebody came to the house looking for drugs uh is that the police uh, common police you know, theory. You know that's that was something that came up on several occasions, and there was somebody that a, I don't want to call him a patient, but some my dad was doing a rotation in the uh, emergency room, and and there was a character that that you know gave him a hard time, was looking for drugs. There was some incident. Um, they were kind of unsure, and they they thought this guy might be the guy. Um, you know, I don't know what what happened that rose to the level where the police would consider him a suspect, but that was, you know, something that was said to me by, by one of the, the cold case officers. So, you know, it might make sense. I, I don't know. You know, I mean, when you're a doctor, people are looking for drugs. Um, I know sometimes that's why my, my doctors don't get empty plates. Um, you know, people are going to break in their cars, you know, especially back then. So I, that's something I've always kind of thought, but, um, you know, I mean, it's not, not certain by any means. And and now it's all these years later. It's it's forty six years later. What is the status of the case as far as the police handling of it? Oh, uh, I I I don't think this is you know being treated as an active case. Um, I know a few years ago someone came to my grandparents where my grandparents used to live in Middle Village, Queens, and um, they they you know, she said that like, she knew who the murderer was, blah, blah, blah. And I think that's when the cops called me, like a neighbor preferred the police, like somehow they got back to me about that. And the, the, you know, that was the last, I guess I heard from, from them calling me. I talked to somebody in the police department, I want to say like three or four years ago, and they said they would look into it and they didn't get back to me. But I know the first officer I said they still had a kit, a kit 
Um, you know, I you know I heard various things. There was a sexual assault. There wasn't a sexual assault. I don't know. Um, I don't know if DNA made it. You know, for, you know, forty six years later, if it's there. But you know, obviously, with what's been going on with the Golden State Killer, and it's two thousand nineteen, and and there's uh, you know, science has come a long way, uh, and you know, I'm you know, the the point of doing this, Mike, is you know, not so much that we're going to catch the guy. You know, I mean, I'm realistic about that. Um, you know, I really wanted to share my story because in case there are people out there that, that were, were going through the same challenges and suffered the same loss that I did, uh, especially younger people, uh, to let them know that, you know, it, it doesn't define you. It doesn't define you at all. Um, you know, it's something that you have to go through. It's something that, that impacts you and, and certainly stays with you, but it's not who you are. And, you know, myself, you know, I've, I've been able to overcome, you know, many of the challenges and the demons that have, you know, that I've faced and, um, you know, created a family of my own and, you know, a fairly successful career and, and all of that, um, you know, despite, you know, stuff that somebody else did to me that, you know, and it's, and, and so as far as catching this, this guy, and I say guy, cause I just assume it is, um, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, if someone had a had a contact in uh, you know in, in the Queens uh, you know PD, it's the 112th precinct. Um, you know the 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 address of of the murder was what was 810 Burn Street in Forest Hills, and uh, yeah, I mean the way it was a place called Forest Hills Garden. Uh, if anyone's familiar with that, it used to be the Jackie Robinson Parkway runs parallel to it. It used to be called the Interborough Parkway. I mean, it just could have been some asshole walking off the the parkway, which is a pretty busy thoroughfare. You know, my mom's, my mom and dad's place was, you know, one of the first ones. He could have just walked in. I mean, the, the hell do I know? Um, though there's one thing, and I didn't mention this, um, and I always found this curious, and I think everyone did. That, that my mom had a dog, um, and it was a uh, Airedale Terrier, and evidently the dog had been put in the basement the night before. Like somehow the dog was in the basement of the of the townhouse in Forest Hills Gardens, so that always kind of led us to believe there was something more to this. Like it could have been, you know, premeditated. Um, and I don't know what to make of that, but there was definitely something with the dog. The dog was was a very barky kind of would have been, you know, would have protected her, um, and it was not in the uh, apartment at the time. So maybe they moved it to keep it from barking or attracting ah. attention. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure someone did something to the dog. Yeah. Now, was that done beforehand and be like, you know, and somehow the dog got down there? But I'm I'm guessing whoever moved the dog, and I don't know how the dog got down there. I don't know. I don't know the layout of the apartment at all. But you know, there was there was some kind of um, you know planning involved. And you mentioned that you're you're not holding out hope that they'll catch this guy someday, assuming it's a guy, but. What would you like to happen, and what would ultimately be a good outcome for you? Um, you know, I, I guess the cliche would be closure, right? Is, is the you know having um, you know closed the case? Uh, would that make a difference to me? Eh, probably not. Uh, you know, I can't bring my mom back. I can't take those years of suffering away from my um, you know my grandparents or my dad. Uh, so, you know, is it, you know, is it, does it come down to being punitive? Um, do I want the guy to suffer? I mean, 
it's 46 years, like, you know, I guess the, the best outcome would be if he's at, still out there that doesn't hurt anybody else, obviously. But this, you know, this, this, this guy is, you know, got to be, say he was at the youngest, you know, 20 when he did this. You know, he's 66. Um, not to say a 66-year-old is, you know, too, you know, too old, but um, I doubt if he's murdering people at 20, he's still around at 66. So I, I don't know, man. I mean, I, I think I told you I'm not... Uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just more careful, you know, thought wise and be like, do I want this guy to, 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 you know, to be killed by the state? Um, I don't know. You know, there's so many people that have gone down that road and, and were innocent. Um, I, I've changed my tune a lot on the death penalty. So I'm not, I'm not looking for revenge. I would like to know out of just, you know, curiosity and closure. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it would close, it would close a chapter, you know, in my life. Um, you know, it's not like, you know, someone in my family was abducted and I don't know where they are, right? And they were, you know, taken 46 years ago and their body was never found. That would be much different. This is somebody that's meaningless to me. Um, you know, he's someone that changed my life, you know, irrevocably, but he's meaningless. You know, he's a, a, a nothing, a zero. So, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious, but that's probably as far as it goes. I know the only way you possibly over the years could have uh, learned anything about your mom was through family and I you know you mentioned you don't have a lot of her belongings or a lot of photographs and stuff but what kind of things were you able to learn about her do you know what kind of person she was or some of the things that people recounted about her over the years uh yeah i do um you know so so one of the first of all you know it's it's just it's a subject right if, if you talk to somebody about a murdered family member or somebody they know nobody wants to talk about it. It's like the, you know, it's like the, the worst thing to talk about. You got to be a little drunk or you got, you know, you got to be one-on-one. And, um, the other thing is when someone talks about it, you know, when someone dies, you know, all of a sudden they're, you know, even, even bad people, you know, they're, they're saints, you know, when they die, you know, they can't, you can't do anything wrong. Um, you know, when someone's murdered, yeah, I think, you know, the, you know, same thing applies. I know the FBI got involved through a cousin. And another police officer, and they went through their, her background with a fine tooth comb. And one of the things that came back, you know, was how kind she was, what was how generous she was. She was a teacher of, uh, you know, elementary school age kids uh, in Greenwich Village in the 60s and 70s. Uh, her students were, there was a huge outpouring at the church. Her students wrote letters. People were heartbroken about this. Um, you, know, other, you know, other than that, I mean, you know, she's 27, right? I mean, I, you know, I'm 46 now. I mean, I'm not even a fully formed person at 46. So I could, you know, a 27 year old, I'm sure she was great. Um, you know, I'm sure she had flaws. I, I don't know what they were, but she was still a work in progress at, at 27. And, you know, I think, you know, people grow a lot from that age to, you know, even to 37. So I, I you know, besides being a good person, I don't know much more than, than that. Yeah. And it's just a, a sad that you, Again, your course was altered. You never got to to know all those things and, and have that relationship. Yeah. I mean, you know, I have no idea. I mean, you know, would you – but if I, I would think I would have grown up differently. You know, my personality would be different. I think I would be, um, you know, a different type person, probably a better person, um, you know, not having gone through this. But, I mean, would I have gotten along with her? I don't know. I mean, like, I don't know what makes her laugh. I don't know, you know, what food she liked. Where would she like to visit, you know? Um, 
you know, should she like, you know, the same kind of music I like? You know, I'm a Stones guy. Would she be someone who liked the Beatles? I, I don't know, right? It's just all, all those things that, you know, you cut, you're just never going to find out. Yeah. Such a sad and, and, uh, and uh, senseless crime. Yeah. You know, it, it really is. Um, and, it, it, again, odds are that nobody out there uh, will know uh, anything, but... You never know. Maybe the right person hears something and they never talked before. Who should listeners contact if they have any information or uh, know anything about the case? I mean, I did some some very brief, uh, you know, kind of research about uh, contact stuff. Um, and I'm trying to find out where I put it. It was the 112th Precinct, and there's a phone number, a 718 number, um, you know, that people can call. It's the New York it's the Queens uh, detectives uh, at 718-520-9250. Um, again, her, you know, the murder was on February 13th, 1973. Uh, Madeline Filippi um, was her name. Um, you know, I, I guess that, I mean, as far as, you know, I know that you said there's other victims that we can, you know, we could share my, you know, my email with, but, um, you know, I think if there's any kind of, you know, headway on the case, uh, would it be all right if they reached out through you to me via email? Yeah, absolutely. And, if anybody and, wanted to contact the show, and yeah, um, I could pass along anything and, like that. And one of the reasons I, I say that is is just because it's not as I go through my you know everyday life, and you know I, I get an email and it's about my mom, and it's happened a couple of times, you know, from friends reaching out or whatever. It, it it just you know it takes a little time to get into it. You know, I have to get into that mindset. I have to you know, be able to, to think about it. And there's just times where I just, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to think about it at all. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, you know, given, you know, what, what happened to me, I, I see that as, you know, my right. It's one of the things I can control, you know, is when I talk about it, when I think about it. So, um, I guess that's, that would be the best way, you know, to contact. Yeah. And we can, we can definitely do that. They can contact me on the murder of my family.com. And if there's any information, I can pass it along to you or pass it along uh, to police. Uh, you know, hopefully, if there's anybody out there that did know something, they would clear their conscience and, and share that. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that I want to thank you, Mike, is that you do give, you know, families and, and survivors a voice, um, you know, to, you know uh, to kind of tell their story. Um, you know, with me, you know, my dad passed away in 1987 so he lived about 14 years um you know after my mom died uh, he was a young man 44 when he died and of a heart attack and you know this had to do you know this was just ha it had to be residual of this this is you know when you talk about you don't talk about you know maybe aside from suicide like you know any it, this is how much it impacts you know families going forward and and you know i consider myself very very lucky my dad remarried um, you know, to a woman that I consider my mother, I uh, have a, just a beautiful sister, a wonderful brother, um, who, you know, uh, you know, came from the second marriage who I consider a hundred percent, my full brother and sister, um, love them with all my heart. Um, I have a wife, kids. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, all that stuff. And I think one of the things that, that I, I told you this before, but I mean, you know, we got lucky because, you know, there was some, you know, my dad had some means, you know, being a doctor and, um, you know, I was, I was able to, you know, see, you know, therapists and, you know, it helped things, you know, and I always thought, you know, the folks, you know, that happen every day, you know, someone gets murdered that don't have those resources. And that's what just absolutely kills me is like, 
you know, it doesn't fix things, but just it, it eases that pain just enough, you know, knowing that you have that support system where you can go talk to a licensed therapist. And for people who don't have that, um, you know, like I just, like, you know, my, my heart goes out to them, you know, and it happens all, you know, every day that they have to go through this, you know, themselves. But I want them to know that they're not alone, um, you know, and I know there's a lot of resources out there. It's just a matter of, of kind of taking that step and, and getting that internal, you know, that, that energy to, to be able to do that. And it's really hard for, for people. I mean, this, you know, when you lose somebody, like it's, you know, depression and, and, and a lot of things kind of seep in. And uh, it makes things that shouldn't be so hard really, really hard. Um, so my, my heart goes out to, to folks. And, and one of the things, like if anyone who's experienced something like this, you know, especially, again, if they're younger, you know, would ever want to talk offline, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm happy to share my experience and, and just coping mechanisms, you know, uh, that, that I found helpful. And hopefully if somebody out there is going through a similar experience that, that you went through, they, you talking about it is helping them in some way. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, I mean, I, you know, it, it's like, uh, like, you know, you're a kid and you, you don't want to eat your vegetables. And like, you know, someone say, you know, there's thousands of children starving, you know, all over the world. You know, you care less, right? I, but, you know, it's like, you know, you're just thinking about yourself. But I think in a case like this, there are a lot of people out there that have gone through. This is, you know, this is so much different. There's a lot of people out there that have gone through, you know, this loss, and it's very personal, and it's a very small club to, to be in, and, and some, a club you don't want to be in. Um, so I think we all owe it to each other to, to, to have that support and to, um, you know, and, and to be able, if someone reaches out, you know, if you're comfortable, to, 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 to be able to be there for them. Well, and I think that's a, the perfect spot to end the show on, on that positive note. Like I said, Joe, I really appreciate you opening up, and I know it's a tough day for you, and, and appreciate you coming on. Yeah, hey, man, th- thank you. You know, it, it, it felt you know it felt good to get a little bit out there. Uh, you know, get get some of this you know off my chest, and and I haven't talked about it obviously to a lot of people, and I haven't spoken about it publicly. So this is this is you know the first time I've done that, and. You know, I hope, uh, you know, generally I'm more, you know, it's not a subject that lends itself to it, but generally I'm pretty funny and I try to, I try to, I try to have a good time, but uh, not, there was not a lot of opportunities on this one to do that. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of Murder My Family. If you enjoyed this episode, please introduce a friend of the podcast and invite them to listen. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. <laughs>